What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Hi there. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. If you don't know me yet, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose, organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. I help companies discover and articulate their purpose to thread it through culture and operations. I work with organizations to develop inspirational leaders who create cultures where people actually want to come to work and do their best. And I provide programs like the Grab Your Gusto that enable individual team members to discover and unleash their passion and purpose at work to catalyze fulfillment, engagement, and productivity. You can learn more about me and how we can work together at EliseCortez.com or Gusto-Now.com. Let me thank my partner and sponsor, WorkProud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everyone wants to know they matter and that the work they do is meaningful and appreciated. WorkProud helps companies do just that through their mobile platform that is built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. WorkProud empowers HR and business leaders to help create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their work and proud of their company. Learn more about WorkProud and the recent study they've commissioned about pride in the workplace at WorkProud.com. With us today are two learned rabbi women. Rabbi Malka Drucker has written 21 books, including the Southwest Pete Penn Award winner, White Fire, A Portrait of Women Spiritual Leaders in America, and Christopher Award winner, Rescuers, Portraits of Moral Courage in the Holocaust. She was most recently the rabbi of Temple Har Shalom in Idlewood, California from 2016 to 2021. Also with us is Rabbi Nadia Gross. She's the director of the Hashbaya training program with for Jewish spiritual directors in the Aleph, Aleph ordination program. Together, they co-authored Embracing Wisdom, Soaring in the Second Half of Life, which we'll be discussing today. Rabbi Markle joins us today from Santa Barbara, California, and Rabbi Nadia is coming in from Boulder, Colorado. Nadia and Malka, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you. Thank you. And it's so great to have you both here. And, you know, the, as you know, this show is, is really designed to be able to help develop um, conscious leaders who are trying to elevate people in the workplace and we do business that betters the world. And the reason I wanted to have the two of you on is because I think that the work that you're doing to really steward people from aging to saging, as you say, is really a critical element and a dimension and a, and a lifeline for us as we continue our, our trek through the world of work. Um, and I think what you put forth is so important because as you say in your book, you know, increasingly more of the elder population is getting pushed out of the workplace when they don't want to. There's so much more to offer still. So as we settle into our conversation today, I want to first start by talking about um, just how in the world that it happened that the two of you came together to write this book. It came out in 2019. How did the magic happen? Well, Elise, I can tell you that way back in 2009 or 2010, as Malka entered a program that I was on the faculty um, to train saging mentors, to train people uh, to, to deliver this work from aging to saging that was sourced in our teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi. And of course, I'd 
was getting to know Malka. We were developing a friendship. I knew that she was an amazing writer. And during the two years of that training program, I brought to her a workbook that I used when I trained end-of-life doulas, a workbook on for, for, die, for people who were dying, which I thought was fabulous. And I said to Malka, this work needs a workbook like this. I think you should write it. <laughs> right? And Malka, Malka, I think, probably thought about it for about 20 seconds and said, well, I'll write it if you'll write it with me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So sounds so, about right. So that's where the idea began. She insisted that I had more content. Of course, she's also, you know, my elder. She likes to remind me often that she's 10 years older than me. And therefore, we also had that span of perspective. I had been doing the saging work since before I was 50. And, and so it really became my spiritual practice for eldering through the, through the decades. Um, we got... Rabbi Zalman Shakta Shalomi was still alive then, and Malka brought the idea to him, and he blessed us on this endeavor. And then life got in the way. Both she and I were busy with many, many other things. And in 2014, our beloved Reb Zalman died. And sometime after that, Malka came to me and said, well, we got the blessing, so I think we need to do this job. And we began our process of working together and um, living in two different parts of the country. Um, we would get together on Skype. That was before Zoom. And we had our book on a Google Doc, which meant that we could see what was being mm -hmm. written live at the same time. And we started our process. We would engage in conversation with each other. We would imagine what this next chapter was about. And then one of us would begin to write and the other would edit what the other one was writing. And then the next one would take over. And, and so the book was written as a conversation, really in conversation and in relationship. And in the process, I learned how to write a book from wow. my beloved elder, who is really the expert. Mm, how beautiful. I'm so grateful that that came together. As you, we were talking about before we got on air, I read your book cover to cover as I do all of my guests. And of course I take copious notes and I want to do next really share some of the, the points that I thought were really, really pertinent to what I know my listeners have, have surfaced over the years. And so I I'll do what I do for a lot of these conversations where we kind of dig deep into the real beautiful depth of what you wrote about and have you really kind of expand on that. So one of the first things that I wanted to talk about is just really the promise of what you're putting forth in the book. You know, people talk about, oh, I'm getting old, you know, I can't do as much, I don't have as much energy, oh, whatever. But what I appreciated about the what you've done in your book, among other things, is you talk about this this opening new space. And so if we situate it in context, you talk about how, how Eric Erickson, who was the early 20th century developmental psychologist, saw eight life stages from birth to death. And his seventh stage, which is adulthood, spans 26 to 64, which is crazy. And the eighth stage, which he called old age, is from 65 to death. And yet in the 21st century, we are enjoying a brand new developmental stage never known to the generations preceding us, a chapter as significant as adolescence, you say. Tell us more. That's beautiful. Well, thank you, Elise. Uh, I actually uh, learned about the, the new stage from uh, Mary Catherine Bateson, who died this year. In, in her book, Composing a Further Life. And it was she who suggested the notion of adulthood too. Mm. Because this is a, re our generation is revolutionary 
in that no generation before us has had this length of time to gestate wisdom. Hmm. So we have this extended period to to now to, to, to harvest, not only because we live, we get to live long enough, but also because we live in a time where uh, technology has given us uh, tools to, to harvest from many other faith traditions besides our own, to really see different approaches to, uh, to aging. And we've often said, you know, that, that if you were a child, perhaps growing up in India, especially in, out of the cities, but in, in villages, that who would you want to be when you grew up? Your grandparents, because they were the ones who were listened to. They're the ones who respected in, in a traditional indigenous societies. We have grown up in a time of the Industrial Revolution, where it's the opposite. The faster you are, the, you know, the younger you are, the more advantage you have. There's no, no such thing as apprenticeship anymore. So that we, you know, we really saw that, in fact, here we were given this time. So since we were given this time, then it becomes the great discovery of why. Mm. What is there for us to learn? Mm. Okay, and that brings me to the next point. Thank you for that, Malka. That was just yummy. And just you did something similar to what you just did there in the book, which was just so great. So why is that interesting to me, somebody who's who's totally anchored in, in, in meaning and purpose? You then go on, kind of extending that idea. You share a quote by Rabbi Salman Shakhtar Salami. Salami, how do you say that? You, he says, why should anyone live longer than the time of begetting and raising children? If we do live longer, then nature must have a task. There must be some kind of purpose. The purpose is, and I love this phrase, to hothouse consciousness, generation by generation, so that the older generation can transmit something to the younger. Yes, yes, and yes. Yes, indeed. So Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, we call him Reb Zalman. So it's mm -hmm. a, a, an easier way to refer to him. Reb Zalman, our teacher, and really the founder of this work and, and started the whole um, process of spiritual eldering way back in the early 90s. Um, he, consciousness, purpose, meaning, those were, th those were the tools that he worked with. Those, those were the things that gave his life juice. In fact, he's, he, he's quoted as saying, the afterlife I can look forward to is that I'll be able to pour all my experience into the storehouse of the planet so that human awareness can grow a little more. So he, his whole idea, this hothousing consciousness, right, was, was that we as humanity are continuously con consciously evolving. And with that evolution, we want to transmit. We want to capture it, hothouse it, let it grow and transmit it to the next generation. And he developed ideas about mentoring and he saw mentoring as a two-way relationship, not just the elder pouring information in a funnel into the head of the younger, but that relational aspect. And with every relationship, he felt his consciousness grew and expanded. And so that was what he saw as our opportunity when we grow to that beyond the child rearing years where we're no longer totally focused on our own children, our own family, or 
or, or whatever children we're engaged with. What do we do as elders, right? There is something that wants to be developed, cult, nurtured, nourished and grown and then transmitted. Mm-hmm. That exactly smacks in alignment with what I've sort of come to believe about you know, this ongoing stewarding of consciousness through our lives as we serve through our purpose. So I'm so happy that I've gotten to know him, even though I didn't get to meet him in person, I'm getting to know him through you. So it sounds like he and I had an awful lot in common in the way we think. So um, thank you for that. So, okay, so the next thing I want to get to is you did something really gobsmacking for me in the beginning of your book when you introduce the notion of our lives as one cycle of a year. So each one of those, it's so, you know, it's 12 months basically to comprise our whole life. And I did that exercise um, and I found it to be extremely useful. So can you tell us where did this come from, this exercise, and why does it work so well? Why is it so efficacious? Well, at least I'd, I'd love to take credit for the, the brilliance of it, but I can't. Um, it's actually <laughs> Rev Zalman's uh, concept that he put together. Okay. Uh, first of all, seven is a magic number in, in Judaism, and then also other other yeah, right. Seven is a number of completion. So, so seven became a natural, and apparently there's a biological basis for this as well. In, in the body that every seven years is a certain renewal. So Reb Zalman took the 12 months and divided uh, our lives into seven year intervals. So that January is zero to seven and then February eight to 14, etc. And what's wonderful about this, and I'm glad that it worked for you, um, is because you take your life in little bites What's the word, Nadia? Uh, Forschweiss? Like a little order, a little. Appetizer. Yeah, an appetizer. It's much easier to do that than to look at your whole life. And you sit down, I'm going to write my memoir. Huh, you know, where do you start with this? So you take <laughs> little bites, then you're able to enter into it. Now, as a writer, I really saw the benefit of this as a structure for a memoir, that this would be that I could teach this in, say, a six-week class. I could give people a way to uh, to write for each chapter of their lives so far so that they would, depending on their age, uh, you know, have 10 chapters or perhaps 12 chapters, depending on, on how old they were. And that in doing, the, in, in doing this, it, look, the other thing is what Nadia didn't say about our working together is there were two things here. One is I was really looking to write another book and my passion now is turning to this work that I was learning through Nadia and other teachers. The other thing is, I've yet to meet a rabbi who doesn't want to write a book. I know that I can say to any rabbi in my community, want to write a book with me, they're going to say yes. It could be about baseball, it could be about anything. So so I knew that I could, you know, and I could do this. And I, and I actually was feeling very much that in doing this work as a saging mentor, as a writer, that's the combination of those two skills. This is really the moment when people perhaps have the time and this desire. This is the purpose to sort of do this harvesting of our lives. So this structure of the seven-year, 12 months is perfect for the harvest. Mm. So yummy. I could hang on to this all day long. With that, though, here we are. Time for our first break. It goes by so fast. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with the authors of Embracing Wisdom, Soaring in the Second Half of Life. 
Those authors are Rabbi Malka Drucker and Rabbi Nadia Gross. We've been talking a bit about where the book came from and some of the opportunities of living from aging to saging. After the break, we're going to get into this really interesting concept called recontextualizing our lives. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. Before we get back to the program, I do want to invite you to check out my my first book, which came out in November. It's called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Unite Passion and Elevate Cause. It's on Amazon. I wrote this book to awaken readers to their passion and purpose and help transform them into inspirational leaders that actually help bring out people to their best. Um, And I wrote it as a basis to be able to create and serve for my programs, like Grab Your Gusto and the Vitally Inspired programs. So I hope you'll enjoy it. If you're just joining the program today, my guests are authors of Embracing Wisdom, Soaring in the Second Half of Life, Rabbi Malka Drucker and Rabbi Nadia Gross. Let's first, before we get into some of that recontextualizing stuff that I think is so fascinating, I do want to hit an important point that you brought up that I wanted to talk about, and that is this idea of coming to terms with our mortality. Uh, I really love this as somebody who works in purpose in the purpose space because purpose in part works because we don't get forever. Um, so what I thought was so beautiful about what you've written here again from Reb Zellman, um, it, it, when we come to terms with our mortality, we enter the present moment with fearlessness, increased intensity, and a sense of gratitude that makes everyone and everything seem almost unbearably precious. Wow. Yeah that it's it's breathless that's a breathless quote right i just i love it and um and and i will let you in on a little secret this is one of the areas where malka and i had a lot of tussling because i had worked for many many years in the field of death and dying i train end of life doulas i work with people at end of life um i've made i've become comfortable with my own mortality and and with the fact of mortality. And it was one of those things that I had to get Malka on board with me um, to be as as available to this conversation as I feel I am. And what, what I see in this quote and what I've experienced in my own work is that the, the thing, that fear of dying or that idea that death is something that happens to everybody else but not me, right? It, which, you know, is is a a wonderful quote from another rabbi, um, is we we expend a lot of our personal energy keeping death at bay, right? As long as I ignore the fact of my mortality, as long as I fear the fact of my mortality, then a huge chunk of my personal energy is being devoted to keeping that door shut, 
mm-hmm. to keeping that idea at bay. When I come to terms with the fact that I am mortal and that life will end at some time and there are no guarantees and I don't know when that will be. When I come to terms with that, the first thing is I free up all of that energy. Yes. To be present to the life I am living right now. The other piece is that when I acknowledge and accept the fact that my life will end, that there are no guarantees, it means that this present moment is the most precious thing I have because I don't know if there'll be a next moment mm-hmm. or a tomorrow. So I, so it wakes me up to the, to the gift of life, to the beauty of life, to the magnificence of this present moment. And, and it inspires me to live fully this present moment, not to waste a drop of it. And that's what Reb Zalman is saying, I believe here. And that's what I've come to learn in the work that I've done all these years. Mm-hmm. Two things to that, Nadia. One is uh, that smacks of this, this Japanese concept called Ichigo, Ichigo Ichie, which I had, I featured the authors of that idea on my, on my show a couple of years ago. And it's the same thing that cherish this moment because it will never come again kind of thing. It's what, sort of what the concept is about. That's the first thing. Then what I want to get to is now you talk about this idea of mortality. Then on the other, maybe not the other end of that, but certainly on the other sphere of that is this notion of the quintessential midlife crisis, which I find so fascinating. I've, it's a, it's a, I believe it is a real phenomenon. However, you know, you talk about it as it's this notion of something is missing. We don't know exactly what it is, and it's definitely wreaking emotional havoc on us. Um, I've come to understand that it's an existential crisis, um, and it's it's an important part of navigating our journeys. I would say. Yes, I agree, Elise. There's no question that uh, it is essential. Uh, Richard Rohr has said that all the skills that you need for the first half of your life are irrelevant or or interfering with the second half of your life. Mm. That sense that that you're going to live forever, so that you have no fear, you just plunge into whatever it should be, and for a long part of your life, you get to stay up all day and all night and have a great time. And then the day comes where suddenly you discover you can't do that anymore. Now what's going to happen? For a lot of us, we could have come into this, uh, as you say, the uh, midlife crisis, viewing it as actually pathology. What is wrong with me? Right. Why can't I do what I used to do? What, you know, and because things like intuition, which become part of the compass of the second half of life, which is why that's why you can soar in the second half of life, because you don't have to continually have the ego make every decision for you. You begin to listen more carefully to something within. And you may not have an answer to what the purpose is. Look, let's say you have been by uh, outward standards and Western standards, enormously successful in everything you set out to get. You've got, you know, the perfect partner. You've got the perfect children, the house, the car, the work, everything. You've got everything. And why aren't you a happy camper? Mm-hmm. That is, by the way, where Reb Zalman began his work. He was 60 years old. Things were going pretty well for him. He was doing fine. Professionally, personally, everything was okay. But there was this little itch, this little flatness, this dullness 
that he couldn't understand what it was. So he decided to take a 40-day retreat. And, and he talks about this in his book, where he, he, the pioneering book. And he says he went to Lama Foundation in, in Taos, New Mexico. And after 40 days, he came down the mountain and he knew exactly what this was about. It was about living in a society that basically tells, says to you, you might as well be dead. You're not reproducing anymore. You're not working hard anymore. Mm-hmm. What's your purpose? So if you're in a society that, and you know, and, and suddenly, you know, if you're a woman and you're no longer looked at the way you once looked at 20 years ago, and what's your value? And if you're a guy and you're being passed over because younger people are coming into position, what's your value? And that was what Reb Zalman wanted this generation to recognize that, that it had value, it had purpose, and that by, by doing the exercises and, and doing this work with others and being real and being honest about what your real fears were, that we would come to discover the meaning and purpose of our lives that we had no glimpse of in the first half. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So aligned, so aligned. Robbie Maka, with what the work I've been doing as well and the awakening piece and using that discomfort to to go and discover and look. And it, there's something in that. There's there's a I like to call it a wild life scratching to understand what's behind that and what it presents and what's there for us to see. And I, I love that. I would have loved to have met that man. So I'll have to read more of his works. So with that, let's get into this notion of recontextualizing. I think this is so, so important, especially, you know, as we go through the aging to saging process. And uh, this is such a, it's so, again, smacks so beautifully in the work that I do. But you say when we live long enough, we see that we have a new way to tell our story. Times give, time gives us the detachment to gain a larger perspective. While several interpretations of an event may all be true, recontextualizing calls us to find the story that serves us best. So we step back and we tell a different story. So first, if you could say a bit more about this notion of recontextualizing and maybe some of its benefits, and then give us an example. You you do one beautifully in the book if you want to share that, but give us an example of what this looks like. Well, this is actually something that I think it's at the heart of the of the saging work. You know, besides coming to terms with our mortality, is that ability to take the long view of our lives and and understand it for what it is and recognize the gifts even in the difficult moments and um, and 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 tell our story differently. I grew up with a grandmother who from the time I was a very young child would say to me, is that really the way you wanna tell that story? I'd come to her with a victim story, you know, somebody did this to me, whatever. And is that how you wanna tell that story? So from a very young age, I learned that there are different lenses Mm-hmm. What Reb Zalman teaches us is that, you know, we go through life and and we carry with us stories of different moments in our lives, different experiences. And we schlep these in, in his language, right? <laughs> we schlep these stories as this was a time that something terrible was done to me. And this is a moment that I remember with shame. And I hope nobody else remembers that one because I feel so ashamed or this is a moment where, I don't know, I was so wounded and and nobody was there for me. And then when we take the long view of those experiences, so I I can give you an example um, that was actually uh, one of the examples that Rev Zalman often um, would use. And that was an example of 
being fired from a job, right? Being fired from a job and carrying the memory for so many years of this guy did me wrong, they didn't understand me, you know, and, and all I remember about that moment is that is is how wronged I felt and how wrong the whole outcome was. Now I take a look at the long view of my life and I see, and this will be Reb Zalman's story, that as a result of being fired from this job where he was the, a congregational rabbi, he moved into the life that we ultimately met him in. This, you know, global rabbi and teacher, a man who started so many different programs and inspired so many other leaders in the world. And if he had remained in that little synagogue, which he could have done the rest of his life, like many rabbis, you know, or other spiritual leaders do, he would have never reached that big stage. And so now he could look back at that moment and bless it. Mm -hmm. He could recognize it rather than being so angry or feeling ashamed or feeling like this was a shameful chapter in his life because he, you know, that he wasn't good enough to be their rabbi. He can see it as this was the moment where my life took a big turn. Mm -hmm. And now I'm so grateful for it. That's a recontextualizing. And I think Malka can tell the other story because it's really her story, the story that we tell in the book. Or a story that she knew, not her personal story. Please do, Malka. Well, this is a story about um, a woman who's a photographer, had her first show, and was very excited about her first show. And a lot of people were in the gallery that night, and then her mother came in. And her mother was uh, a vain woman, uh, somewhat narcissistic. Um, it wasn't exactly the easiest relationship this uh, this artist had with her mother. And her mother comes up to her, and the artist has the expectation that her mother is going to say, congratulations. But instead, her mother says, how do you like my necklace? And the artist is like, ah. And it became the perfect narcissistic mother story for years and years and years. After the mother dies, uh, the, uh, the uh, artist decides she's going to write a book, a memoir about the mother. And in doing this, she, uh, she looks at the photograph, looks at the photographs, looks at the photograph of the necklace that the mother was wearing. And she realizes that it was a piece, nothing like anything else her mother owned. It was uh, contemporary. It was modern, if you will. And it was clear she had bought it purposely for this occasion, thinking that her daughter, this would be something her daughter would really like. And that it was, in a sense, honoring the daughter, honoring the evening. So all those years later, she came to realize what it was. And look, a lot of the um, apologies that we make, if we're lucky, we get to do them while we're both on the planet. But we do find ourselves at a certain point in our lives making apologies for things that we did a long time ago. And maybe those people aren't here anymore to receive them. Or at least we hope in some realm that by doing this, there is some repair by our coming to understand 
the truth of that moment and that we've gotten to tell at least a better story than the story we told ourselves as victims uh, for years. Mm -hmm. So empowering, which is why I wanted you to share that. So beautiful. It also really aligns with some of the logotherapy work that I do as well. So here we are already coming to our next break. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with the authors of Embracing Wisdom, Soaring in the Second Half of Life. Those authors are Rabbi Malka Drucker and Rabbi Nadia Gross. We've been talking a bit about this idea of recontextualization. After the break, we're going to talk a bit about some of those beautiful mistakes that we've made along the way and what they really are as gifts. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. Another thing I want to share with you, this this just came out, this just in, if you will, is this anthology that I've been curating for the last two years where I have literally scoured the, the globe for 25 women to share their most intimate stories of how they've discovered their purpose and are now serving from it. So it's just come out a few weeks ago. It's called Passionately Striving and Why. And I'm so proud of it. I could bust and so we celebrated that just a couple couple of weeks ago. And uh, Rabbi Malka also put some words of testimonial in that for us as well. So I wanted to share that with you. Check it out. If you're just joining us, my guests are Rabbi Malka Drucker and Nadia Gross. Let's get next into this notion of mistakes. We kind of, we did sort of surface it in, in the last little bit there, but I think this is so, so important for our listeners to get it so yummy. So uh, you also write, you say, perhaps the ultimate wisdom isn't so much in our transmission of what we know as in allowing the generations to have their own experiences. They need their mistakes. When we look at what we what life has taught you, most of the biggest lessons came from falling down. Yes, ma'am. Ma'ams. Yes. Yes, <laughs> yes Elise, absolutely. I think if we can be really honest with ourselves and tell ourselves the truth about ourselves, those things that we are most proud of in our character, in our accomplishments, in our relationships, emerged out of big oopses. We learn incredible lessons when we fail. And that's that's the work that's that's the work of spiritual practice that's the work of you know the soul's evolution and of of seeking meaning in everything that we are and everything that we do i'll tell you a wonderful story of reb zalman um right right near the end of his life the last book that he was a part of came out called the december project written by Sarah Davidson, and he was chronicling his December years. We talked before about the uh, cycle of our lives. As a, um, so he was chronicling the December years. And they had a public uh, celebration and questions and answers 
here in Boulder, Colorado, where Rip Zalman lived. And, um, and he, he said at a certain point, you know, there are times that I still want to get angry with my younger self. And I want to say to my younger self, why did you do that? Or why weren't you smarter about this thing? Or how could you have made this kind of mistake? He said, and then I experienced my younger self standing up to me and saying, don't you blame me, old man. It's because of me that you are you. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so good. So good. It's so good. It's so right. Thank you for, for generating that the way that you did. It's gorgeous. Uh, and then we have to go on to another part here. There's, it's just amazing to me how many overlaps there are in what you've written about and, and my methodology and approach. So um, definitely overlap here when, we, when you say, only when we no longer have the mini task of the second act can we reflect upon what it means that we did those things. This is when we begin to think about legacy and the purpose of our lives. Without purpose, we lose zest and passion for living. Jewel de Vivre is a key part of wisdom. Amen, sisters. Amen. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, what I've thought about since actually writing the book, um, that when Nardi and I talked about this is, what happens for people who never developed a practice of Jouad de Vivre? Yeah. This is a major difficulty. However, I will say that there, you know, people at different stages of their lives may come to a certain awakening. There's no question for a lot of us that being busy has been an MO again for that first half of life for so long that we're terrified of the stillness. We're terrified mm -hmm. at first mm -hmm. of the quiet. And then, then though, if we can, you know, find ourselves the courage to enter into that place or we're forced into it because whatever happens, it, it, it's uh, we've gotten sick, we're in that moment of stillness suddenly we discover that things that we've done in the past that we did without really even savoring the goodness of it. Yeah. You know, the, the gift that somebody gave us, the triumph of something that we've accomplished. Now, now we can look at those things. I mean, he said, wow, that was pretty amazing, you know, that I had the courage to do that when I was 31 years old or whatever. And that... You know, I didn't know it then, like Reb Zalman, that that would be a turning point for me when I responded the way that, you know, you know an example for me is I began as um, I was going to write a book about Tom Seaver, the great baseball pitcher. And I was supposed to have an interview with him. And I never got it because his manager wanted to have, I mean, not a second of his uh, star's life should be uh, take, taken without um, getting some money for it. And I remember just thinking, what am I going to do? I hear I traveled all the way from California to New York to meet him, and I wasn't going to meet him. So I went downstairs. I had some uh, Chinese uh, wonton soup, and I contemplated my future. And at that moment, <laughs> a voice came to me and said, you can't give up. You, have, you can go call one of those publishers that you met at a writer's conference a month or two before and see if they want to just talk to you. See what they think about the idea of doing this. And I did that. And I knew that regardless of the result, that I got up and I would go forward and I didn't give up. And I can look at that now. Now, 
my elder self can look at that young person and say, yeah, yeah. So all of that self-doubt, not necessarily liking myself so much, I'm in love with myself, my younger self now. I can put my younger self away. I never could when I was that age. Mm-hmm. And also being in that moment, right? I know this because I, if you listen to my language, I am helping to address the literal walking dead who don't know what it is to experience a show of Daviv. And they've lost the ability to be a child and giggle at the smallest of things and enjoy and revel in that kind of a moment. That's exactly a lot of the work that I'm doing with leaders inside organizations because we spend so much time there. So I, I had to talk about that. So thank you, Malka. Um, all right, so a couple more questions I definitely want to get in before we have we run out of time. I'm really fascinated. I've only with one other person heard anybody talk about this notion of dropping the body. And of course, it was Paul Skinner, who I love in the UK, very, very conscious man who taught me about meditation and to, to, to get into meditation. But you start talking about this, you know, in your book, when you say swiftly or slowly, aging is immutable. Becoming an elder person, an elder requires shifting from identifying with the physical, that is the body, and learning who we are beyond what we do. Each new discovery is a mini death, a preparation for what Ram Das calls dropping the body that gives us a foreshadowing of death. That is actually incredibly alluring to me. I love that, <laughs> that it's alluring to you. So Ramdas referred to dying as dropping the body mm-hmm. because it was only the body that was going to be gone. The rest, the essence of the person and and the residue left in this world, that doesn't end. That doesn't die, right? The thing is, is that as we grow older, as we become elders, we have to first and foremost um, shift our focus from the body and the doing that the body does in order to embrace the gifts, the magic, the opportunities of eldering. And we as women particularly, you know, this is this can be a really difficult thing where we've learned that how we look and what we accomplish with our physicality is, is how we get um, a sense of meaning and how other people see us as being important or worthy of taking up space in this world. And so learning to actually disidentify um, as our body changes, as our capacities wane, we have less energy. Malka referred to that earlier. Now I need a nap. You know, I didn't, I used to be able to work from sun up till almost the next sun up without mm-hmm. thinking about it no way now you know my brain sort of says it's time to shut down when i go downstairs to prepare dinner for my husband and myself i'm not coming back to my desk afterwards to continue working there was a time that i would do that till one two three in the morning no way right so i i have to come to recognize who i am my purpose and my meaning beyond what I look like, right? How I present physically to the world and what my body is capable of accomplishing in a 24 hour period of time. Mm-hmm. And each time we come to terms with that little bit of loss, that's a mini death. Mm-hmm. And so we, and when we recognize it in that way, we come to identify more with 
with our essence, with the meaning of the life that we've lived, with the purpose that we have spread out in the world, with the legacy that we are leaving. And we can actually embrace the joy, the delight, the magic, the opportunity, and the wisdom of elderhood. I could have this conversation for days, but uh, I think we have time for one more question. And I want to bring that to the notion of guilt and regret. That's so important. So many people carry that and you do this so beautifully in your book. So you say, we learn to distinguish between guilt and regret for what we have done. Self-forgiveness allows us to know that everything in our lives had to evolve the way it did so that we could learn what we needed to know to become complete human beings. This is an act of humility that enable, ennobles and expands consciousness. That we have pain in remembering our behavior in a past incident demonstrates that we have learned from it and would not in our present consciousness do it again. In this we can rejoice and we can also forgive ourselves. That's incredibly powerful. Well, yes. Uh, one of the things about Reb Zalman's uh, the last words in the December project is uh, I noticed how many times the word forgiveness, forgiving, forgive came up that, that, that the way to have, to feel a complete life is to come to that place of forgiveness. And it has to begin with oneself. So there's a, there's a poem called the art of losing by Elizabeth Bishop. I can tell you that I think in a lot of ways that one of the ways we become sages is by recognizing that as the e what do we lose? We lose our egos. What do we gain? We gain our souls. Mm. And the only way we can do this is by the admission of what we have done in this life and to be able to forgive ourselves for what we've done. And in doing that, we, we do. We, we enter into a, a certain nobility that will take us to a place of ultimate completion. But the it's true that in many ways, I mean, I do find myself saying to, to my friends, to anybody who might, who's willing to listen to me, you know, look, you know, how arrogant are you going to be? Like, you should be better than everybody else. That, 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 that there, there's an assumption that, that, that the only way for us to do this life is for us not to make mistakes, not to have done the wrong thing, and that to ultimately come to the admission of these things and then to come to the forgive, forgiving ourselves and maybe having to do something to reach that forgiveness by making some amends, doing some reparation, whatever it should be. I mean, that is ultimately that I would hope that everybody who might be listening and watching this will come to a place of saying, wow, I might actually free myself from the prison of my needing to always be right. That's a big thing. And I think that's one of the gifts that we can get as we become elders and recognizing that nobody needs us to be right. What they need is to be loved and they need to be loved by us. And that's one of the things that we can learn to do as we come into better relationship with ourselves by heavy doses of self-forgiveness. Thank you for that, Rabbi Drucker. That was just delicious. So we've come to the end of the show and I want to give you both just a chance to maybe in like 15 seconds, just what would you each like to leave our listeners with? We have, we have listeners across the globe. What would you like to leave them with? Malka, you go first. Okay, Nadia, buy our book. That's the first <laughs> Buy two copies. Seriously. You could read a thousand books on this subject. 
You can read all of Elise's books. You can read all of our books. And you will not get home until you sit down with somebody else and you actually talk it through and do the work together. Yes. So that's, that's what I'd like to say. Thank you, Rabbi. Rabbi Nadia? Yes. And, and just as Malka and I have become saging buddies to one another, that is the single most important thing as we grow into elderhood, as we have to confront our mortality, as we have to deal with those mini deaths. You know, I had to let my 31-year-old body die and acknowledge my 66-year-old body and love it just as much as I had loved the younger one, right? We, we need somebody to witness us, to hold us, to love us unconditionally into our elderhood and to help us tease out the pearls of wisdom from this long life experience that we are living together. So find your saging buddy. Oh, thank you, Rabbi Nadia. What a beautiful way to finish. Thank you both. What an honor and just filled my heart and soul to be reconnected with you and to read your book. So very grateful to be on the journey with you. Listeners and viewers, if you want to learn more about these amazing women, you can find Rabbi Malka Drucker at malkadrucker.com. You can find Rabbi Nadia Gross um, at yerusha.org. That's Y-E-R-U-S-H-A.org. And thanks to our partner sponsoring, again, WorkProud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback. And thanks for the work from their people from across the company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch it via recorded, via recorded podcast. We were on the air with Jeff Tuff and Stephen Goldbach talking about their book, Provoke, How Leaders Shape the Future by Overcoming Fatal Human Flaws. It's a fascinating conversation about the limiting mindsets and cognitive bias. We humans must learn to intervene to be our best. Next week, we'll be on the air with Uni Torrentini from Norway talking about her work, understanding the criticality of loneliness in today's times and how it impedes our well-being. See you there. Remember that works at least to the rest of our lives, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.